It is great to be with you again today. I want to extend a special welcome to those joining us via the live stream as well today. We get to be back in Romans one more time in 2020. About four months ago, we began this study of the greatest letter ever written, Paul's letter to the Romans. Then two weeks ago, the last time we were in Romans together, we started to study what is perhaps the greatest paragraph ever written. After two and a half chapters of bad news about how the wrath of God will fall on every person who is unrighteous, everything in Romans changes with those two precious words in Romans 3.21, perhaps the two sweetest words in all the Bible, but now. But now something has changed. Something new has happened. There is hope, not in ourselves or in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of God. And that is what we're going to study and meditate on together once again today. But before we start working through this paragraph, Romans 3, 21 to 26, we're in it the last time in Romans, we'll be in it again today. But before we get to it, I want to ask you to think with me about something else for a couple of minutes. Related, but, but something different. Here's what I want us to think about. What do you think is the most difficult question for any religion to answer? Okay, so just... I want you to ponder that. I want to think through this a bit before we get into the text today. Okay, now, there, there are, of course, lots of hard questions that might come to mind. Perhaps you have been asked hard questions about Christianity. This was uh, in the summer when we were doing volleyball over at the property and Bible studies. We basically took hard questions, one per meeting, talked about it. Or perhaps you have asked tough questions to people from other religions. You know, maybe you have a Muslim friend or a Hindu friend, and you, and you have decided to ask them what you think will be a hard question for them to answer. Okay, what are some of those really challenging questions? Here are a couple that come to my mind. Perhaps you would think of some of these or, or some others. I think one of the hardest questions is the question, how do you explain the evil and suffering in the world today? Often this is framed like this. If your God is all-powerful, and then especially if you say your God is also good, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? Okay, that, that's a tough question, right? Or how about this one? Since there are lots of religions out there, how do you know that your religion or your holy book, or your God is the true one? Tough questions, right? And there are, of course, a lot more. Another common one that is asked to Christians in particular is how can a loving God, you could finish it. I mean, this is a really common question. How can a loving God send someone to hell, especially to eternal judgment? These are all challenging questions, but, but I actually think there is a question that is even harder to answer than these ones, especially for any religion that talks about a God who is both just and merciful. And, and by the way, 
Who out there wants to have a God that they would say is unjust? Have you met anybody with a God like that? You know, says, yeah, yeah my, the God I worship is, is unjust. I, I, maybe there are people out there. I, I don't think I've ever met somebody who, who says that. Or who out there wants to have a God who they would say is, yeah, yeah, my God is pretty merciless. I mean, who would want a God like that, right? And interestingly, even those who say they don't believe in any God at all probably like both of those attributes or characteristics. I mean, there is something within us, even if we want to say, I don't believe in any God, there's something within all of us that wants there to be justice in the world. And it bothers us when there's not. We've talked and thought a lot about that this year. And yet, because we all realize our own failures, even the failure to live up to what we think we should be, who among us doesn't know that we need mercy? And so perhaps the hardest question for a religion to answer is not something like, how can this God judge people for the bad stuff they do? Maybe the the harder question is, how can this God forgive people for what they have done and still be righteous? Or how can a God show mercy to anyone and still be perfectly just? Isn't mercy always at the expense of justice? And by the way, this is a tension point in the Bible as well. Okay? And without going into great detail about this, I want us to think about this just from the Bible's perspective. Okay? So, so take Abraham, for example. In one of the most famous verses in Genesis, we read this in Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, and Abram believed the Lord. Okay? So he, God promised him certain things, and Abram believed the Lord. And then the text says, and the Lord counted that to Abraham as righteousness, okay? So Abram believes God's promise and God credits Abram with right standing with God, okay? Have you ever thought about whether that was right for God to do that? Was that just? Here's what I mean. If you know anything about Abraham, you would know that from the time he was 75 years old, though he wasn't perfect after this, he followed the Lord faithfully from the time he was 75 on. Okay? But do you realize that for the first 74 years of his life, he was an idolater? He was an ungodly man for much longer than most of us have even been alive. And yet, when he believed the Lord, the Lord counted him as righteous which is to say the Lord forgave Abraham for all those years of ungodliness and declared him right with God. Now question, did Abraham deserve that? We'd say no, right? This was God's mercy toward him. So then the question is, was that right for God to do that? Was that just or unjust? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This, And this is far from the only place where this question is raised in the Old Testament. One text I want you to see, specifically one of the most important in the entire Bible, is in Exodus chapter 34. 
I want you to go to Exodus chapter 34. This is a text I often think of when I think of you know, really important ones in the Bible. You should know this text. Our kids have memorized this text. Exodus chapter 34. It is in a story where Moses is begging God to reveal himself more to Moses. And God says, yes, I will do that for you. So, so in, the, in the text leading up to this, God shelters Moses like in the cleft of the rock. And then God passes before him. And God proclaims to Moses exactly who he is and what he is like. So the whole Bible reveals God, right? Shows us who God is. But in this text, God proclaims who he is. God himself tells Moses, this is who I am. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Did you catch that? Right there? Okay. When God himself says who he is and what he is like, he says, I am merciful, loving, and forgiving, but I am also a God who will never clear the guilty. God is a God who forgives, but who does not let the guilty go. What do you make out of that? Like, how can both of those things be true at the same time? And we could go on and on in the Bible with, these, with this tension. We haven't even mentioned, like, how God forgave David, for example, who did incredibly heinous sins in committing adultery with the wife of his soldier who's out there defending him, and then murdering his faithful soldier to try to cover it up. Now, to be clear, it's not like David didn't face any consequences for what he did. He most certainly did. But the Bible is very clear on this point, that when David truly repented of what he did and asked God for mercy, God gave it to him and forgave him for all that he had done wrong. God took his sins away. In fact, this is what David sings about in various psalms. Question, was that right? Was that just or unjust to pardon him for adultery and murder? And here's what's really interesting. I don't think the Old Testament ever fully answers these questions. They are there, but I do not think the Old Testament fully answers these questions. Perhaps the closest you get to an answer, though, is in the book of Leviticus. You cannot read the book of Leviticus without missing, or, or, and, and miss, how sin deserves death, right? Blood has to be shed. Leviticus is a bloody book. Right? But what you find as you keep reading is that God has prov- provided a way for human sins to be dealt with 
through the shedding of the blood of innocent animals instead of the blood of the human being. This is what you find when you read Leviticus. And of all the places where Leviticus talks about this, the greatest day of sacrifice that's talked about in Leviticus is the one we read about earlier in Leviticus chapter 16. Do you remember what we read? I tried to read it slowly, help us to think about it. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, all the people of Israel would gather. And for, that, and for the only time all year, the high priest would enter not just into the, into the tent, because he did that regularly, but for the only time all year, he would enter behind the inner curtain into the Holy of Holies. And I want you to think, that is the most private and holy place on earth. He would go in there one time a year and only him. And he would go in there carrying blood. Blood from a goat he killed. And he would put that blood on the mercy seat over which God was dwelling. And then he would go to a second goat that was still alive, the scapegoat, and he would would lay his hands, lean in, and confess all the sins of all the people. And it would be symbolically, he would be placing their sins on that goat who would bear those sins outside the camp and they'd send it away never to come back. On that day, in that way, the people would be cleansed from all their sins. That is the closest you get, I think, in the Old Testament to seeing how God could forgive our sins but never let the guilty go because there was payment, blood shed. But even in this, we're left to ask, is that really enough? That question, I think, carries through the rest of the Old Testament. Is that actually enough? Now, go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. Romans 3, 21. We're going to start by just reading the three and a half verses that we went through last time when we were in this text. Romans 3, 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now there's a lot there. You can go back and listen to the sermon from last time to hear more. But from just reading it today, remember, God has come to the rescue of the unrighteous, just as he promised he would do throughout the Old Testament. And remember that God is offering right standing with himself, free of charge, to anyone who wants it. And since we're all in the same boat, in the same predicament, because we're all sinners, the promise of right standing with God, free of charge, is for all of us, without exception. Because it does not depend on us or our merits or our worth. 
justification or being declared right with God is through grace alone. It is not a status you earn. It is a gift you receive from God through faith. This is why for hundreds of years this has been talked about that justification is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now this brings us to the new part of our text today. But I want to go back at the end of verse 22, and I want to just read a little further then. But pick up at the end of verse 22. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, did you catch the contrast? Okay, think about it. We are justified by his grace as a gift in other words, this is entirely free to us. We don't pay a thing for it. It costs us nothing. But that doesn't mean this didn't cost someone something. Right? That's the contrast. We are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What cost us nothing cost God dearly. We can only be right with God because of the redeeming work of Jesus. Now, what is Paul getting at when he talks about redemption? I'd suggest there are at least three big ideas in the new, when you read the New Testament and you hear about redemption. One, redemption has to do with being set free from slavery, specifically. The people who need to be redeemed are those who are enslaved. Okay. God redeems us through Christ from slavery to sin and death. God sets us free in Christ. Second, but along the same lines, when Paul speaks of us being redeemed from slavery, this is going to remind readers and should remind us of a day long ago when God redeemed his people from slavery. Redemption in Jesus reminds us of the great day when God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt at the Exodus. That miraculous act of deliverance which God performed and which was tied to the blood of the Passover lamb was pointing ahead to the day when God would do something even greater, when God would deliver his people from an even stronger enemy, from an even better lamb. Third, when Paul puts these things right next to each other, that we're declared right freely by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, Paul is highlighting perhaps more than anything else that what is given free of charge to us, what costs us nothing, costs God dearly. Grace isn't cheap. Right standing with God isn't cheap. It costs us more than we could ever pay. The price of our righteousness is the redeeming blood of the Lamb. And to see that this is what Paul is emphasizing, the price that is paid so that it's free to us, to see that, this is the emphasis you just have to read a little further. 
And so I want to do the same thing again. I want to go back to the end of verse 22, and I want to read just a little further. Verse 22, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That right there is the cost of our redemption. That is how it happened. That's when it happened. It's when God put Christ forward publicly on the cross to shed his blood as a propitiation for us. Now, what does that mean? Particularly this word propitiation. Translated in some texts as an atoning sacrifice. When Paul says God put Christ forward publicly as a propitiation, what is he getting at? How would you explain that to someone? Do you know what that word means? Or if your translation says an atoning sacrifice, what does that mean? This idea of propitiation is specifically related to what we've been spending weeks studying in Romans. Propitiation is about the wrath of God. If God's wrath falls on every person who is unrighteous and every person is unrighteous, then what hope is there for any person to be spared from the wrath of God? It's only in this that someone better than us might bear the wrath for us. And this is what the word propitiation or atoning sacrifice is about. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins and to turn away God's wrath from us so it would not fall on us. This is the heart of the good news. And I don't want us to move on too quickly from this. Instead, I want want to stay here and I want to think about this a little more. Okay, so just listen again. Think, God put Christ forward publicly as a propitiation by his blood. And you're going to have to stick with me here, okay? This word in the ESV, propitiation, or in other translations, an atoning sacrifice, that is a good translation because this captures what Paul is getting at. But the downside of of these translations is that we probably miss a key Old Testament connection. Here's what I mean. That word is used throughout the law of Moses. Exodus, especially Leviticus, and the book of Numbers. In fact, it shows up 20 times. And it is worth noting that in every one of those 20 uses, this word always refers to one thing. It always refers to a place. It always refers to the mercy seat. It is the same word. And that is why one translation, the Net Bible, translates this verse as saying that God publicly displayed Jesus as the mercy seat. But no matter how we translate the word in the text, what Paul is getting at is this amazing truth that Jesus' death on the cross 
is both the sacrifice for our sins that turns God's wrath away and the place where God and sinners can finally meet and be reconciled to each other through the blood. And so just think with me. Just meditate on this, on the glory of what God has done. Think, God put Christ forward publicly as a propitiation. Think, God did this publicly. He put Jesus out there for everybody to see. The cross was public. Jesus was exposed. He was put to shame publicly before everybody who wanted to see. Jesus was hung publicly on the cross. The mercy seat in the old covenant was the most secretive place on earth. Only the high priest could ever enter. No one else ever got to see what happened behind the veil. No one got to see the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. The incense rising up over the seat. Only one person, once a year. But God put Jesus forward publicly. And he exposed his son to the world as the mercy seat. This is the place and this is the way for you to meet with me. Second, notice that God did this. God put the sacrifice forward. This is in contrast to all other gods and all other religions where it is always the worshipers who have to bring the sacrifice, who have to produce something to try to please the God or the gods. But this is not the way it is with biblical Christianity. God took the initiative. He came after us and he provided the sacrifice for us. And then third, notice the cost, the phrase, by his blood. The blood of the sacrifice had to be shed, had to be brought into the mercy seat. And so as Peter said, well, in 1 Peter, we were not ransomed with corruptible things, cheap things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what it took to turn God's wrath away from us. And this was all done for us. Why? It was done because God loved us. God sent his son because he loved us. And Christ went to the cross willingly, not reluctantly, because he loved us. But now notice the last phrase of the line. It says, this is to be received by faith. We saw this last time as well. Being right with God is now possible because of Jesus, but it is not automatic. How does what Christ has won become ours? The answer is right there in the middle of verse 25. This is to be received by faith. Salvation is a gift from God. If it is a gift, it means we didn't earn it, we can't buy it but it does mean we need to receive it, to embrace it, to take hold of it. And how do we do that? We receive the gift of right standing with God by faith, 
by trusting completely in Jesus. This is incredibly good news. What God has done in Christ is for us, free of charge. You just need to believe it. Trust what God has done. Trust on Christ. But interestingly, this is not where the text ends. Paul does not end by pointing out what God's rescuing work does for us. Paul closes by pointing out what God's work in Jesus does for God. And so that's where we're going to end today. Look at verse 25, kind of towards the middle. This is how he ends. He says, this, all of this was to show God's righteousness. Because in God's divine forbearance and patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now, did you catch up? Two times. The way God has worked through Jesus was specifically to do something for God or to show something about God. What? Everything God has done was to display his righteousness or his justice. Why did God need to show his righteousness? What was it that brought his justice into question? Look at the end of verse 25 again. Paul says this was, God wanted to show his justice because in his divine patience he had been passing over former sins. Whose sins had God been passing over? Forgiving. He had passed over the sins of all of the Old Testament saints. People like Abraham, Moses, David, and many others. God had truly forgiven them for their sins. And God had done that for them even though there was no sufficient payment for what they had done. The animal sacrifices they had offered were good, but they were not enough. Yet God forgave them anyway. In the case of David, God forgave David for things there weren't even sacrifices for. There was no sacrifice for adultery or murder. And yet God forgave him anyway. How could God forgive them and still be righteous? Wasn't God clearing the guilty unjustly? And the answer, Paul would say, is no. Why not? It's because God forgave them and passed over their sins on the basis of what God would one day do for them in Jesus. God was just to forgive those in the Old Testament, not because of what they did or even because of what they would do for God. No, God forgave them because he knew what he would do for them. But not just that. Look at our final verse, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
the specific way that God has worked to save us has been to display his justice now. It has been to demonstrate that God is not unjust when he looks at you and says, you are the just. God is just to do it because Jesus, the righteous one, died in the place of the unjust. The gospel unveils not only the mercy of God, the gospel unveils the justice of God in showing that mercy to us. As Paul says, God is just, even in justifying the unjust who has faith in Jesus. What should we do in response to this? A time of public gospel meditation. I'll suggest five very brief and very simple responses. First, we should all repent of our pride. That gets us to think we are really something or we're somehow able to fix ourselves. We are not. What God has done in Christ is the only way to make things right. Second, we should all put our faith completely and solely in Christ. There is no hope for us in ourselves or in our own righteousness, but there is hope, forgiveness, and right standing by trusting in Christ. Third, we should all lift up our hearts and praise God from whom all blessings flow. Of all the things the gospel should lead us to do, the gospel should always lead us to sing. Fourth, we should come into Christmas with thankfulness. Thank God for Jesus and for the gift of right standing with God. And finally, when we get in a conversation with a friend, coworker, family member about gifts we're thankful for this Christmas, why not tell someone how thankful you are for the gift of right standing with God. I doubt they will have ever heard that. And maybe to see if God won't open the door to share more about that gift. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. I feel like we were <clears throat> thinking about things that are just so holy and so deep and profound and yet they are simple and glorious and good. I pray that you would stir up in our hearts thankfulness, a longing to sing, a longing to share this gift with others. Thank you so much for Jesus and that we can know we're right with you in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.